So, um, anybody have anything they would like to share with regard to that meditation? I'll just ask you, the last thing that I suggested that you do, uh, it was predicated on the possibility that you were in a place where your mind was very still, and thoughts had pretty much become playing in the background. I was wondering if anyone uh, tried what I suggested and if they experienced anything. Yes. I noticed that I was feeling really peaceful. My hands were you know, very pleasant and you know, kind of tingling, and so I focused on that and um, didn't really notice anything for a little while, and then, except just that pleasant feeling. But then uh, a lot of tranquility and peacefulness came up, and it seemed like uh, the joy or energy in my mind just, uh, it mellowed out. And mm-hmm. I just had a very, very, peaceful feeling in, you know, my experience of my arms and the rest of my body started to change quite, you know, dramatically. In a... In, in a, a peaceful way, like a, a very expansive Very expansive way. Mm-hmm. Oh, very good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a great meditation for me, um, and I appreciate the uh, attention to the body. Um, so. In the past, I've been able to experience before, and this time it was really nice. Uh, this buzzy, wonderful um, starts in the lips and the hands, and just like takes over um, throughout the body, and um, it will go out to about maybe this far. It goes like here, and it's very, very intensely pleasurable. Um, and I get colors. I get like these waves of. It'll be intense purple for a while, and so that's really nice. And I've I've been there before, and I love that. And sometimes, this time it was I was able to do it a little bit. I can carry it into when I'm, my eyes are open, and I can just kind of carry it around a little bit. Yes. Um, what's next? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can I can get there, you know, and I don't and I'm I'm apt to be attached to it. Yes, it's easy to get attached to it. It's so attractive, interesting, different. Wow. Uh-huh. Feels good. <laughs> oh, I want to do that again. Again, <laughs> again. <laughs> yes. Well, your description contains the elements of uh, it's a, a, a pretty much any classical description of arising of pity, the pity, that feeling of. Uh, a buzzing energy, a fine vibratory quality, and the appearance of colors or lights and so forth, and the feeling of uh, joy and, and happiness. Um, <clears throat> where that goes is that you you come to understand exactly how it is that you create the conditions for that, and so you keep creating the conditions for that. It will become more intense, then you become, it becomes more familiar to you, and the intensity subsides, and it becomes much more tranquil and peaceful. 
Uh, the other part you mentioned is you, you said sometimes when you get up, you can carry that with you for a little while. And that is, uh, that is, that's where it's supposed to go. It becomes, uh, after it's become very intense, and then after it's become familiar and the tranquility and equanimity come in, then it can persist. You know, if you meditate once a day, uh, it can not have entirely gone away before the next time you sit down. And when you sit down, it comes back on full force. And so you can end up basically going through your life in this very, very strong state of, of pity, of joy, a lot of tranquility and a lot of equanimity. And that's, that's very good. That's, that's a wonderful place to live your life and to practice, uh, to practice mindfulness from, because your mind's really clear How does that relate to when the sound separates? When, when sound breaks up? When the sound breaks up? You know, you know what I mean? Like, uh, the first time it ever happened, I was in a, a chant, mm -hmm. and there was somebody in the room that was really out of tune with everybody else. Uh -huh. And it was, <laughs> it was like really irking me, mm -hmm. you know? And I had to, uh, or I chose to um, find equanimity with that, and I was like, just give it a wave of equanimity, and what happens <coughs> is sound starts to break up. And it seems, and I noticed it sometimes when you go into the joyful place where everything's buzzing, that sound will break up, like there'll be a bird chirping, but the, so the sound waves break up. Well, uh, that sort of auditory change, that's, that's part of the, it, it affects all of your senses, it affects your visual sense through colors and light, and that's the way it affects your auditory sense. It takes different forms with different people. You know, you describe it as sound breaking up, whereas somebody else might find that there's this internal sound that's becoming stronger and stronger so that, that uh, any externally generated sound is sort of on the other side of this and they, have, and they can choose to either reach out and hear it or they can just stay inside this uh, this place of internal sound. So it happens differently for different people. But it's part of the same thing. It's part of the same process. Yeah. Yeah. This? Um, I that was a great minute. Joy scares you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> Can you say anything more about that? Well, I was just trying to figure it out. Um, I can think of two things. Number one, probably my upbringing. You know, you're not supposed to be too happy or excited. You know? Yes. And also maybe it's like the fear of letting go. Yes. That's, that's, that's pretty good. You, you nailed... The two things that are probably most likely to get in most people's way. Uh, the first one, it can be that the way you grew up, you were taught that that you shouldn't have too much fun, you shouldn't be too happy, that there's something wrong, selfish, indulgent, so forth about that. Um, certain kinds of religious upbringing can be, you know, some religions are very... Uh, very strict and, and stern and uh, 
you know, don't make a lot of room for, for joy. The other thing that can be often a part of that or it can be separate is the feeling that you don't deserve it. We spend a lot of our lives judging ourselves, criticizing ourselves, finding ourselves wanting, or sometimes things that happened to us as we were children growing up left us with the imprint that somehow we were uh, flawed, less than we should be, uh, you know. And so we carry that with us through our life, and we're not deserving. We're not really deserving of happiness. So, so, but to some degree or another, uh, uh, many people experience that when they begin to experience joy. They realize there's a part of me that that is pushing this away. It doesn't want it to happen. So. You recognize that, obviously. That's what's really good. Like Sometimes it can be hard to write. It's, it's a sneaky kind of thing that goes on in your mind. It can take a while before you figure out what's happening. So at least you recognize. You, you, need, to, you need to make friends with that part of your mind. You need to let it come out in the open. and You need to let it expose these thoughts and feelings. And just, you know, let, let them be illuminated by the clear light of consciousness and to be accepted and to uh, make way for this part of your mind to be there and be accepted but to recognize that it doesn't have to keep clinging to this this view and this idea it can that part of your mind can shift its values to become more consistent with those other parts of your mind that you're more conscious of. And then the other part of it that you said, what was that? What was the second thing? I think it's letting go. Is letting go. Is a fear of you're going to lose something. That's, that's a part of your mind that is, it really is aware of what's what's really happening in this and where this can possibly lead. Because what's really happening underneath all of this is you are transcending, even dissolving, that sense of self, of being a separate self. Because as the stronger joy becomes, the less separation there is between you and everything else that is. And, and the, the, the fainter and, and the weaker becomes that artificial mind-created boundary that defines yourself. And your mind clings very strongly to that. And in a sense, the fear of losing that mental construct is very much the same as the fear of death. You know, because uh, we fear death because we fear the loss of the self. And so, so yeah, it can be a strong feeling of fear. If I let go into this, what's, what's going to happen to me? Where am I going to be? You know, uh, and it's completely irrational because you know, the other part of your mind is saying, 
yeah, yeah, well, I want to be there. <laughs> that sounds like a great place to be. Yeah. But this other program, I say, no, 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 we don't, <laughs> we don't want to go there. Nah. Just, that's unknown territory. That's very scary. So it's good that you recognize these and then just, you know, make friends with these parts of Yes? I had difficulty with that meditation. I, th- I thought my body felt relaxed and yes. good. And then when you said to find one part of the body that felt good to concentrate on, the only part I could find that was not uncomfortable was an earlobe. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I tried then to concentrate on the earlobe, and I wasn't really able to. Yeah. Should I keep looking for another part of the body that felt comfortable? What you, what, uh, what you need to do first then, if that's the case, is you, you need to keep checking in your body and see why it's uncomfortable and where that discomfort is coming from. Um, I mean, one, one possibility is you to have some sort of uh, physical problem that's producing a lot of pain. And is that the case? It's not a lot, but it seems to be all Okay. And then the other possibility is that as you sit there, you relax and you get comfortable, but then as you sit there, some of these unconscious processes of your mind are, are producing tension in your body, and they're creating aches and discomfort and things like that. So what, that's why you need to check in. You know, if, you, if you're finding that, what I would suggest for you, check in with your body fairly frequency, frequently. And when you do so, find that, search out those places where tension is starting to develop and let go of them. You know, if you're, these muscles up here are contracting, or these here, or, you know, if you feel a tightness developing anywhere, seek it out and then just, you know, gently let it go and do that as often as necessary. Now, as far as the uh, actual pain that's there, uh, mild pain uh, and pain that's not really pervasive, what you can really do is just acknowledge it and let go of it and focus more on the pleasant sensations. If you have severe pain or if you have pain that's very pervasive in your body, then you're going to have to take a different approach. You're going to have to address it directly uh, you're going to have to use the power of mindfulness to just investigate what this pain is and what the experience of pain is. And in the process of doing that, you'll come to a place where either the pain disappears uh, or it becomes much less disturbing. Or the third possibility is you'll come to a place where the pain is just, it's still there, but it's just a sensation and you're, you're able to separate the unpleasantness that you experience, the suffering part of it, as being a reaction of the mind, which you can let go of. Um, and this is, some people have chronic pain and they take up meditation practice, it's a very powerful way of dealing with it. It's not, it, it takes a little time. I don't know if this applies to you at all or not. When you first take pain, as a meditation object, the initial experience is usually 
that, oh wow, it's even worse than ever. Mm-hmm. Better off not paying attention to it. But uh, the trick in this is to persist, but to take a very objective stance with it, so that you are the you are the consciousness that is objectively observing and investigating the pain. You're not the I that's hurting. <coughs> so you work on doing that at first, and, and you accomplish that to a great degree by taking this very objective. You know, you you exam you meditate on the pain from the point of view of uh, what kind is it? Where exactly is it? Is it moving? Is it expanding? Is it contracting? Is it changing in intensity? All of these kinds of questions that you know, like if you were an entomologist studying bugs, you'd, you'd see you'd ask all these kinds of questions: How's it behaving? What's it doing now? And so forth. And you take that kind of approach to examining your pain, and that reinforces the objectivity. And usually, as you succeed in doing that, this is where you'll find sometimes the pain goes away or else it subsides to the degree that you're a lot more comfortable paying attention to it. The next step in the process is where you start to examine the pain in terms of, well, what is it about this sensation that makes it painful anyway? So, and this is a project that takes some time. And of course, if you're a person who has chronic pain, then you've really got nothing better to do with your time than this. <laughs> because the, the pain's going to be there anyway. And the wonderful thing about it is you're going to find the pain becomes a lot easier to deal with. But um, the short of that situation where your primary thing that you need to deal with first before you can do very much else is to is to learn to deal with the pain. Then what you need to do is to evaluate how important unpleasant sensations are in your body and compare them with the pleasant sensations. And allow, you know, pain that's not very severe, you can get very good at just giving it permission to be there. What you will find is that the more you resist it, the worse it is, the harder it is to accept. And the more that you can can say, yeah, okay, you can be there, stay there, I don't care. Be there as long as you want, try mm-hmm. with me. You know, that um, that's that's how you start experiencing it. Well, you know, it's not that difficult to deal with. And at the same time, there is pleasure in your body and things like that. Pleasure. When I say things like that, pleasure in your body, there's pleasure in your mind. There are pleasant aspects to your experience. There's uh, sensations, there's sounds, things like that that have pleasant associations. Do you notice this? That when your mind is calm and attentive, that associations pleasant associations can come up in connection with all kinds of different sensations. Yeah. And you, you, want to, you want to be aware of that and you want to, to allow that to happen and embrace that when it does make it part of your present experience. So, so I, I hope that will, that will help you. you. To do the particular thing that I described to you, for you towards the end of the meditation, you really need to have dealt with 
other things sufficiently to be able to do it. If you you know if you still got uh, if you still got pain in your body that you haven't yet dealt with, or you still have a lot of tension being produced in your meditation that you haven't been able to let go of, it's not it's not really time to do that yet. Likewise, if you if your mind is still agitated or tending to seek dullness, that's not particularly a good time to do that either. But when you have those periods where your mind seems to be really calm and still, you just you know you can ride that wave of those sensations in the breath, and you just stay right with it. And there's hardly any thoughts, but the thoughts that come, they're just you know there's little whispers in the background, and you know they're there, but you don't have to. You don't have to buy into them at all. You don't even have to know what what they are. And uh, then that's the place that you're ready to to try this little practice that I described. Little practice. This is a very major practice, actually. What is what it can do and where you can go with it. Um, if when your mind is sufficiently still and calm, you find pleasant sensation in your body and you and you take that as the meditation object. And the real trick in this, it's a subtle thing, you'll need to practice a little bit to get good at this distinction, but you're not, you're not really trying to meditate on the pleasant sensation so much as to get in contact with the quality of pleasantness that is associated with that sensation. And what this will do, well, it will either tend to fade away or it will tend to to grow and expand. It will, uh, the, the, it may become more pleasurable, you may experience that tranquility, peacefulness, things like that. And you just keep on, if that happens, you just keep on meditating on it, just letting it evolve and grow whatever it wants, whichever way it wants to. Sometimes, when you focus on it, it'll tend to wither away and disappear. And then you just go back to meditating on the breath for a while, and then it seems like seems like you're ready to give it another shot. You give it another shot at that point and see what happens. But it has the potential to develop into the classical meditative joy that we call piti. It will you will begin to feel energy currents and tingly sensations, electrical experiences, they'll have little flashes of, of joyful feeling and happiness and things like this. And you just keep working with that until eventually it becomes very strong. Uh, most of the time, not always, most of the time there will be a strong physical component that predominates. Uh, you feel a lot of energy in your body and it often takes this sort of fine vibratory tingly effervescent uh, kind of takes on that kind of feeling uh, sometimes it's mixed with you know like really strong electric like currents just moving up through your torso and, and into your head or things like that. But when when it becomes strong like that, you can actually enter into a kind of absorption with that. You can just sort of let it let it completely fill 
your awareness. Just let go of everything else and just go completely into that. So this is one of the ways of accessing meditative joy intentionally, deliberately. It's what you're really doing is you're practicing a very light form of what's called jhana. Mm-hmm. You, you focus on the pleasantness of the sensation until the PT starts to arise. And then as it becomes stronger and stronger, you're taking this PT as your meditation object. And uh, when it is strongly developed enough, you can absorb your whole conscious awareness into it. You can just sink right into it. Or, you know, uh, there's a couple of different ways that I'm familiar with that people experience this. One is that it's as though you feel like you're sinking into it, you're just disappearing into it. And you will encounter a little bit of those twinges of being afraid to just let go and disappear into this. The other way that you can experience it, it's like you focus on it and it just grows and it grows and it gets stronger and stronger. And you can just let let it grow until it completely fills. It uses up all the available bandwidth for consciousness you have and there's just nothing else present. That's the other way of entering into absorption with it. And that will allow it to develop and become very strong. So so that's that's a tool that you can use. So just look for the joy, cultivate the joy, and let it become stronger. But whenever you find the opportunity that you might be able to pursue it in a little more direct way like this, go ahead and try it out. Let's say something a little bit about the stages of meditation and the role that PT plays classically in this process. It's in, of, of the ten stages, and anybody's not familiar with the ten stages of meditation I'm talking about, it's available for download from dharmatreasure.org. Uh, and uh, I think there's a button called Writings. And it's called Light on Meditation Handout. But there's ten stages in the development of Samatha. The eighth stage is where PT becomes fully developed, becomes very strong. The ninth stage is where you keep arousing PT and becoming familiar with it and you let the excited, energetic aspect of it gradually subside through familiarity. And then tranquility begins to develop. You have a really strong sense of tranquility and a lot of equanimity begins to develop. And then the tenth and final stage is where, as you mentioned, if you the longer you can stay in the state of samatha, then the longer it persists. And if you get up from your meditation, at first you'll notice that you know it lasts for oh, half an hour or 45 minutes or something like that. But then it'll last for longer and longer periods of time. You'll get to the place where it gradually tapers off, and then you sit down to meditate again, you know, whenever that is, and it just zooms right back up to, to full strength. And when you know you you are technically an adept meditator when that happens. You know you can you can now through using your meditation practice you can 
enjoy powerful concentration, mindful awareness, joy, tranquility, and equanimity all of the time. And, and this is the place to practice mindfulness in your life. You know, it's, it's boom right there for you all of the time. So you can, you can examine what's going on in your mind. You can watch your mind's reaction. You can, you can see how you are reflected in everyone else and everyone else is reflected in you. Gain really deep insight. That's that's the role this plays in the process, and that's how it develops. Uh, as far as the other part of this, the attachment and the chasing after it. Most often, what will happen is you'll have a strong experience of PT, and it's like, oh well, I want that again and you'll try to make it happen. What you'll discover over time is that trying to make it happen doesn't work. What you do is you know the conditions in which it arises spontaneously. You create those conditions and you get out of the way. Because the more of you there is wanting it to happen, the more that's going to just simply be in the way and and keep it from so you need to, to learn this and, uh, so that you can create the conditions and have PT develop more, more readily, more often. You can become attached to it. And uh, as a matter of fact, you will become attached to it. You can experience this without becoming attached to it. But you can also overcome that attachment, and you have to. One of the things that I mentioned to you in that handout is that uh, in some traditions, uh, PT is regarded as a defilement of insight. Mm-hmm. That's, what it was the, that's why joy was a defilement? Yes. That's what it was. Joy is considered to be one of ten defilements of insight. Uh, these, these, these were cataloged in uh, uh, Buddha Gosa's uh, Siddhi Manga, the Path of Purification, that was uh, uh, written, you know, almost two millennia ago, as a compilation of all of the meditation wisdom at, at that time. Uh, and uh, it it can it, it can be, the understanding of this can be distorted and misinterpreted, but the problem with it, if you look at the ten defilements of insight, you'll see that all except the very last one, which is a kind of attachment, are good things, positive things, desirable things, you know, and including joy. And so you can say to yourself, what's the matter with these nutcases calling these? These things that the Buddha said we needed to develop as factors of enlightenment and so forth, uh, calling them defilements. But they are they're defilements in the sense that you do become attached to them. And that the forms that attachment can take, uh, the, obvious, the obvious one is you really like them and you want to keep experiencing this. But and, and that, of course, will keep you from 
continuing to develop your practice because you just want to sit there in the state of uh, strong joy. And uh, the other one, though, is the next step beyond that is that you say, well, wow, they say enlightenment is this and this and this and awakened being is like that. That's me. I'm there. I've arrived. I don't need to do anything else. If if you can, you know, if, if you can practice in the tenth stage of a samatha practitioner, you will have this PT with you all day long, every day, and you'll go out in the world as this radiant, beaming, happy, equanimous being, and you're convinced that you're enlightened, right? <laughs> and and so. Other people look and say, wow, you must be enlightened. And you say, <laughs> And that happens. But, and the thing is that this, this, this state of samatha, this persistent state of samatha that you carry with you in the world, it does resemble the state of an enlightened being in many ways. It, it's a very, very wonderful thing. As a matter of fact, I'd go so far as to say it's the next best thing to being really awakened. But this is its downfall. If you're not able to keep up your meditation practice, it's going to fade away. If you get ill, if anything happens to affect your body or mind strongly enough, you're going to lose it. Even circumstances in the world can you know, you've still got all the same seeds of the uh, uh, mental afflictions that you ever had in your mind. They haven't been destroyed. They've just been overwhelmed by this PT. And things can happen that will push your buttons, and they'll bring, they'll turn these things on full force. You can experience, uh, you know, severe. Uh, kinds of emotional and other traumas in your life. And your PT is going to go. So that's what makes it different, is it's temporary, it's dependent upon causes and conditions, and there's no way to make those causes and conditions permanently be there. You still have work to do. The path to awakening, you haven't arrived at it. But when you reach the point where PT arises, you're going to have to learn that. Now, in the in the system of the path of purification, where they describe the progressive stages of the development of insight, <clears throat> this happens. The fourth stage is called the knowledge of arising and passing away. This is, I'll describe it, and and you'll recognize it in terms of other things we said. It's where your mind just, it's totally with whatever's happening. It sees moment by moment. Every sensation, every thought, it sees it arise, and it sees it pass away. It sees it with perfect clarity. It's because you have strong concentration and strong mindful awareness. So when you arrive at this stage called the knowledge of arising and passing away, it's right in the middle of that that the so-called ten defilements of insight will arise you are going to experience joy. Joy and happiness, clarity, wonderful concentration. 
the energy of the joy is going to create in you a, a fervor. You're going to want to go out there and, and share this with other people. Uh, tell other people, you've, you've got to do this. You've got to come practice. You, you know. These are all good things. The problem is that you think you think that you're finished. You think you've done the work. You think that this is it. You've arrived at the goal. And you haven't. That's the only problem with it. The tenth defilement is attachment. You get these nine wonderful qualities and then you get attached to them. And that's what makes them the ten defilements of insight. So then, in this in the middle of this experience of the knowledge of arising and passing away. Now, before you can proceed to the next stage, you need to acquire what's called the knowledge of what is and is not the path. The knowledge of what is and is not the path. And that's basically the realization that, well, this is great. This is what I need. Now I'm ready to move on. But this is... This is not the goal. The path is to use this and move forward. And this is also in, in the progressive stages of insight. This is the point that is marked as the true beginning of insight. Because this is, this is when you can begin to practice in such a way that insights that arise will not be mundane insights. They will not be intellectual understandings or uh, conceptual epiphanies or things like that, but where you will start to have experiences that give you the penetrating insights into the truth of what this is all about that you're experiencing. So it's called the true beginning of insight. So the, the ten defilements of insight, when they lead you to the knowledge of what is and is not, path, then, then you arrive at the true beginning of insight with all the tools you need to move forward. So that's how attachment, that's, that's the problematic side of attachment. Which is not that bad of a problem at all, really. Uh, because usually it seems that it's only a matter of time before the meditator begins to realize that there's, there's more, more work to be done. And I haven't realized the end of the path yet. I, I think the exception to this is if it comes too quickly and too easily. If you really haven't gone through the process of gaining all those other insights along the way that come from learning how your mind works and uh, learning to deal. If it comes too quickly and too easily, that's when you can become very attached to it. And I think the other danger is if you go out and advertise yourself as an enlightened being, now you've got all these people that uh, think you're an enlightened being, it makes it really, really hard for you to go back and do the work. Because right? you, you've, got, you've got an ego, and not only that, now you've got an ego with a huge investment. So, so th- those are those are those are the problematic side of it. But it's a uh, it is it's a wonderful and important thing to write about. Yes. 
It doesn't seem that there is ever an end to the path. That's what it seems like to me, that there is no end to the path. <laughs> and it just keeps getting better. So, take that to heart. That, you know, forget end of the path. <laughs> no matter how good it seems where you've gotten to so far, what what awaits around the corner is so much better you can't even imagine. So just keep on going. <laughs> so the, the Buddha probably would not then have felt that he had reached the end of the path. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I can't recall him ever saying that. And as a matter of fact, it wasn't until a few hundred years after uh, his final passing, his Mahaparinibbana, that followers of his began to to say that he is, he is the ultimate, there's nothing beyond, he achieved the absolute, complete, total enlightenment, end of story, you know, that, that became a description. So, and maybe that is, I don't know, I, I know I'm not close enough there to say that there is or there isn't an end of the path. But from where I am, it doesn't seem to be an end of the path. And it seems to me that this description of Buddha in those kinds of terms is something that came later and that I don't think he was ever necessarily telling us. Yeah. In, in one of the workshops with Hayward Fox, he shared the story of his nine-year-old girl, daughter, who stood in front of him like this and said, so when I'm perfect as I am, why do I need so, to, to work so hard? <laughs> and he and we asked, so what did you say? And he said, well, I fell in front of him of her and said, you are my guru. And then my, my wife didn't like it, he said. <laughs> so the question is, when, she's right, this little girl. When we are perfect as we are, why That's do right. we have to work so hard? <laughs> you, you're absolutely perfect the way you are, every one of you. But if you're suffering, you're going to become more perfect. <laughs> uh, I'll say one more little thing uh, on the topic we've been discussing. There are some practices of those that rely very directly on this description in the Visuddhi Magga that I'm sharing with you. <clears throat> the nature of these practices is that you know, they involve a high level of mental activity. Uh, like the, uh, some of you may be familiar with the Vipassana practice that requires you to note every single thing that you are aware of. Mm -hmm. And so your mind is hopping back and forth between the mode of direct experience and the mode of conceptual wavelength. Back and forth, and it gets faster and faster and faster. And it has to, for this practice to work. It's, that's the engine that drives this practice. But that degree of activity of the mind prevents strong PT from arising. And so, if you're doing if you're doing a retreat in that practice, and you go to do your meditation interview and say, "Oh, I'm having so much joy arise. My body doesn't hurt anymore, and I sit, and, you know, it's so easy. I've been meditating for three or four hours at a time now." And the meditation teacher will say, "You're not noting enough, are you?" 
you're not trying hard enough. And they're right. Because the only reason that that tiki could arise is you've slacked off on the noting practice. And, and your teacher will be right. If you want to do this practice, if you want to follow this method, then you get on top of this noting to the point where PD is not arising. But what happens in that same sequence, there is a point that you get to. It's actually the uh, last knowledge before the great breakthrough. It's called a knowledge of equanimity towards formation. And at that point, there will be equanimity, tranquility, and the mind will be in a state of joy. It might not necessarily be experiencing uh, a lot of radiant happiness, but it will be in that state of joy. The PT will be, will be present. So uh, it's not that PT doesn't occur in that process. It's just that it, occur, it occurs later on. And, uh, but the meditation teachers in that process know that when a student is not at that stage and they start reporting, you know, no pain and joy and things like that, that they're slacking off in their practice. And so that's, that is the other thing that we will encounter here. Maybe one other thing in that context occurs to me. When do you, uh, if you look at that sequence of knowledges described in the path of purification and that is the basis for um, certain Vipassana practices, you'll see that the knowledge of arising and passing away is followed by the knowledge of dissolution. This is where you come to really understand the meaning of impermanence. That is followed by the knowledge of terror, the knowledge of misery, and the knowledge of disgust. These, uh, these are called the dukkha jnanas, the knowledges of dukkha, of suffering. And there's a lot of suffering involved with them. They're very unpleasant. Uh, creates a lot of physical suffering in the body, a lot of psychological suffering, because you're confronting you're confronting the realities of impermanence, uh, the pervasiveness of suffering, and the illusoriness of self. But you're doing it in those practices with a mind that's not in the state of joy. That's what makes it so difficult. And it's not the only path to follow. <clears throat> it even says this in the Visuddhimagga. If you go back there, it will describe the knowledge of terror and, and say, but does this, I can't remember the exact words, but it says, does this knowledge of terror mean the meditator experiences terror? And then it goes on to explain that no, it can mean that the, the meditator is in the place of looking at this objectively and saying, aha, it's like a, a, a pit filled with poison snake. It's like a burning brand. If I were to cling to that, then I would then the, the thought of, of what would happen to me if I cling to that, I can recognize the, the terror inherent in it. I don't need to experience the terror. So that's the difference. Whether or not you have PT, whether you're following, uh, whether you're following a method that develops PT and uh, gives you, in advance of these scary insights, gives you joy, tranquility, and equanimity, or whether you're following a path that leaves those to the end and you have to kind of go through the fires 
on your own first. Uh, personally, I prefer uh, the path that involves the, the path of samatha, vipassana, that you have PT tranquility and equanimity. But there's a lot of people that have been very successful following the other path as well. So, you know, I guess it's different strokes for different folks and what works best for you. Yes? What's the difference between tranquility and equanimity? Um, what's the difference between tranquility and equanimity? <clears throat> tranquility is the, the stillness, the quiet, the serenity, um, the, the happiness that accompanies joy when tranquility is present is the contented fulfillment, ful- ful- fulfilled feeling, the not needing or wanting anything, the being perfectly at peace with what is. Equanimity is non-reactivity to things. So your experience, something happens that's pleasant, something arises that's pleasant. Do you grasp after it? Do you cling to it? Do you try to hold on to it? Or are you willing to just let it come and go and pass right through you? Oh, that's that was pleasant, but that's gone without grasping and clinging. That's equanimity. With things that are unpleasant, they pass through you in exactly the same way. You don't try to block or resist or avoid them. It's just you let them come, you let them pass right through you. It's, oh, that's unpleasant. Oh, that's gone. So. Anyone else have comments or questions? Uh, I have questions about the no tea. Yes. Um, how, how do you get I, I know that Chinson teaches no tea and labeling. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a bit confused about something when you brought that up. Yeah. Confused about the no tea and you explain the no tea. Um, what exactly is it about that can, that uh, you'd like to clarify? Instead of, you know, like you're concentrating on the breath, uh, do you note, you know, what's the process of noting uh, while you're meditating? Well, <clears throat> there are variations on this, but one of the most commonly used is you do usually take the rise and fall of the abdomen to anchor your attention. And then anything that enters your conscious awareness strongly enough that it uh, that it displaces the awareness of rising and falling uh, as as the focal point, then you label it. You label it until it disappears, and then you go back to the rising and falling, unless something else has intervened at that moment, and then you label that, and you uh, so you come up with a label and, and you, re- you may repeat the label several times. A thought comes up, you say thinking, thinking, until 
the thought disappears. Or if uh, you're sitting there meditating and somebody honks a horn outside, you say, hearing, hearing, until your mind lets go of that sound. So, so this is that's the way the process works. Is that what you're wondering? Yeah, is that noting or labeling? That's labeling, noting, and labeling uh, are they're the same thing. Although, as you go along and as you get very skilled at it, you won't need to say the word in your mind anymore. Mm-hmm. Instead, there is the concept, hearing, and that's enough. It becomes uh, nonverbal and then it's noting. Uh, The next step beyond that is noticing rather than noting, so that uh, you don't have to, uh, you don't need to draw, pull up the conceptual flag to stick to the experience. But that's that's a quite advanced stage in the process. And so you start out with a lot of labeling, and then when you get really good at it, uh, and you have to, because it takes a certain amount of time to think hearing, or to think thinking. To think those labels takes a certain amount of time. And as your mind starts to work more and more quickly, and as your awareness of different things begins to, you know, your mind starts to hit on things really, really quickly. So there's not time, really, to to create a verbal label. So you have to be able to note, let the, let the conceptual recognition arise without going to the stage of generating a word to go with it. It's a bit of an aside from what we're talking about today, but I'm happy to answer your questions. Yes? Uh, so in, in meditation, uh, when uh, when the uh, the opportunities arise, um, there comes, let's say, in the case of a pain, there's a pain, and then uh, on meditating on that pain, there may be experiences behind that pain. Yeah. And the only technique that I've ever learned in dealing with those is to pay attention um, and to um, break them apart, basically, to split the strands of experience and then to bathe them with equanimity. And then they, they disappear. They, they, there's like the, I don't know what to call that, but there's like a popping and it goes, and it's gone, you know, that sort of thing. Is there anything more or different than that you do or can suggest in clearing those experiences that pop up? Um, well, there's more I can say along those lines to, to expand on this. As far as dealing with pain goes, uh, yes, what you're doing by getting into the objective mode and examining the sensation as sensation against different qualities and things like that, yes, you're untangling the different strands of experience until they become clear, until ultimately uh, the mental reaction that we call suffering and which makes the pain painful gets separated from the rest. And it's, it's at that point that it just becomes a sensation and you know, it's not a, a pain anymore. So we're talking about doing the same thing and describing it in slightly different terms. And can you see that it's 
It's really the same thing. It's really the same thing. Yeah, it's really the same thing. Um, but you said something, when a pain comes up, there's other experiences associated with it. Now, let's look at that a little further. Like Some of the other experiences that can be associated with it can remind you of past trauma, or it can be associated with, with fear. I mean, one of the things that happens when we have pain is we're afraid of what might happen, you know, all kinds of fears of, I've got this pain. Oh, does it mean I'm dying? Does it mean I have cancer? You know, mm-hmm. Or uh, uh, maybe it's never going to go away. Maybe I have to deal with this pain forever. Or, or even, you know, uh, if, you, if you have a severe pain, like a migraine headache, and the thought comes that, oh, these usually last X number of hours, however long they last for you, that thought can be so painful. And it's painful because you're you're imagining what it's going to be like suffering this pain for that number of hours, you know. So there's a lot of other different kinds of mental and emotional experiences that get even interwoven with our pain. And you know, I, the description I gave you is more appropriate to a pain that you're primarily experiencing uh, sitting in meditation and you already know its cause and, you know, but a pain that carries all, all of this other stuff with it, you're going to have to, you're going to have to get in touch with all that other stuff. And you said, bathe it in equanimity. I would say, you're going to have to just accept it. You're going to have to say, okay, there you are, you're there. This is why you're there. You have a right to be there. I created the causes and conditions for you to be here and everything I did in the past. And so, yeah. And so you come into a place of acceptance and you bathe it in equanimity. But you might have to do this, might take quite a while. It might be a lot of stuff that you have tangled up in your pain. Uh, you know, things like you, you can be 60 years old and this goes all the way back to childhood trauma that you have. So. What this is, this is part of something, this particular example regarding pain is part of something that has to take place and does take place in meditation. Uh, it's described as purification of the mind. Uh, and think of it this way, your mind is many different processes and some of those processes are holding on to a lot of old stuff. If you want to unify your mind, then you're going to have to deal with the old stuff that's being held on to by some of those processes. And they've been buried in the subconscious or unconscious part of your mind all the time. You sit down to meditate, your mind gets quiet, and this stuff that's been hidden away for all that time starts to come to the surface. In form, can come in the form of memories, painful memories, can come in the form of emotions and you don't even know what the memory is associated with. You're just sitting there meditating, having a good old time, and all of a sudden fear starts to come up. Um, Sometimes it can take the form of you're sitting there meditating and and some image, some vision of something, some ghastly thing that will come up and it's like, where does that come from? What's that to do with it? I mean, it's not a memory, but it's connected to some of your stuff. 
That's why, and these things do come up in meditation, and when they do, um, you don't want to push it back down, send them off back into the dark again. You want to bring them out of the open. You want to, you want to allow yourself to be with them, to accept them, to let them tell you whatever it is that they're trying to tell you, and let the light of conscious awareness give that part of your mind that's been holding on to this thing a new perspective, a new way of looking at what it's been holding on to. And in that way, you can say, you can let it go. It becomes resolved. And when you let it go, it goes away, and it goes away once and for all. And so this process of purification is an important part of what happens in your meditation prior to the unification of mind prior to the strong PT arising is all your old stuff that hasn't been dealt with is, well, not all of it. It took all of you to have to meditate for a thousand years. The good thing about this is key portions of your old stuff can come up and you can deal with it. You can, you can look at it. You can accept it. You can come to a place of being all right with it and that will resolve a whole bunch of other stuff that it's connected with that you don't you don't need to dredge up. Okay. But uh, yeah, this process of purification of the mind is very very important part of the meditation process. And the answer to what to do with this stuff when it comes up is you don't hide from it and you don't try to push it away. You let it be. You know, you approach it with the attitude, ah, okay, you're there. You must, you must have a right to be there because you wouldn't be there otherwise. So then you just look at it, bathe it in equanimity. I like that. That's a nice phrase. Mm-hmm. It probably came from someone else. Shinzen. 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 A lot of good stuff comes from Shinzen. That's a really good phrase. Bathe it in equanimity. That's what you do when. When your stuff comes up, is you don't react to it. Equanimity is non-reactivity, complete non-reactivity. One of the little pitfalls you can come to is stuff comes up and you bathe it with uh, non-reactivity and it goes away. So then some other stuff comes up and you say, "Oh, good, I can make it go away," you know, and it won't work because you're not really bathing it in equanimity. You're just trying to get away, get rid of it in a more sophisticated way. You have to really accept it. You have to you have to accept it with the idea that if it's there forever, that's all right. Not with the idea that, ah, I know the trick now, I can get rid of it. This is bad. <laughs> just won't work if you do it that way. It might seem to work, it might go away, but it'll come back again. Because it's still there. Yes. When you say accepted, you're talking. I'm thinking about things that are because I'm old. I've been through you know many things, and it includes anger or loss, mm-hmm. grief, injustice, things that really, in a way, can't be resolved with someone else. Mm-hmm. In many cases, but yet those residual unpleasantness or 
I suppose, thorns in a way, even mm -hmm. though they're buried and they're well cushioned and covered with layers now, they're not sticky thorns. But when you say accept it, do you have to unravel these things? Because when they come up, sometimes it's really mm -hmm. not entirely clear what the source of it is. You, uh, you don't have to unravel it in the sense of you, you, you don't need to uh, analyze it. You, you don't need to revisit it. Then. Revisit it and play with all its different parts. Uh, it's more, you know, let it do whatever it needs to do. If there's parts of it that you need to look at, they'll present themselves. You don't have to go looking for them. This is something you talked about yesterday when you said have, you have to work out these internal conflicts. Yeah. This is part of this. This is a very important part of this. Yeah. In order to really be at peace. And That's right. It's yeah. logical. Right. You have to make peace with it. You have to make peace with with the different parts of yourself, with and the different uh, parts the of your mind. The method of doing that is what? <laughs> Do you have like a one, two, three on this? <laughs> well, as you say, these things... I'm really good with lists. <laughs> these things do tend to be hidden away and buried away and cushioned and everything else so that you could, you've been able to go through your life pretending that they weren't there. Although, I'll, I'll tell you that you haven't really because they've been infecting every... Yes, uh, I said affecting, to change that, infecting. They've been infecting every decision, every reaction, <laughs> everything else that you've done. Because you said yesterday also that things that we have a reaction to are based on a series of other reactions we've had. Yes. So therefore, it's connected to all those unpleasant, horrible, sorry, yeah. hard things. Yes. So you want to get rid of that so you're pure. <laughs> so you have pure reactions or more momentary. Well, as far as the steps you yeah. go through, the first thing is you've got to quiet your mind so that all of this ordinary, everyday, pointless noise of the mind quiets down. And you've got to be in a state where you're open to letting these things come up. The biggest change that we make is the more we come from a place of acceptance and the less resistance we manifest to anything, the more open we become. This is what invites these things to come up to the surface. So um, a lot of the work is just calming your mind. And as you calm your mind, and as you learn to work with your mind, as you develop, as you make friends with your mind, you become patient with yourself and what you are. This creates the circumstances so that these things can come up. When they come up, you have to uh, you have to be aware of your reactions and try to let go of those reactions. Hopefully, by the time they come up, you're in a, a, a place of a lot more peace. Uh, and uh, it's a lot easier to do this. So that even though the reactions might come up, you're in a place where you recognize that and you, you, you don't feel like you need to let that reaction carry on. You can just, you can let go of it and let go of it and allow yourself to be 
of whatever's being presented to you. You know, love. Loving yourself, loving what is. Acceptance, accepting yourself, accepting what is. Um, not struggling. These are, these are the most fundamental, foundational kinds of changes. Recognizing that anytime your mind starts generating emotions, or anytime your mind starts generating thoughts to do with something, that that's not reality. Emotion is, you know, it, it completely covers and obscures reality. And it's, it's a mechanism that's just trying to make us behave in some particular way that some misguided mental process thinks is going to solve the problem. So you just have to accept the emotion. Like, okay, here's this emotion arising. I'm not this emotion. This emotion isn't reality. This emotion is what my mind does in response to these things. And let it do that but see beyond it and not attach to it. When the thoughts come up and things that things that have a lot of emotional weight have a lot of thinking invested in them. A lot of, you know, you know this, the sentences, the ideas, the thoughts, you know, as soon as it's turned on that it starts playing the same old record and everything. And you gotta just let go of that and know that okay, this is this is the old story, but this is not reality. And let go of the story and just be with what's there. Being that's what being fully present with it means. The uh, all the story the story does not exist in the present. The story is totally illusion anyway. But the story is about the past, and the story is about the future, and the story is about the imaginary person that you either are afraid that you are or that you would like to think you are, and it doesn't matter which. You know, the, the story is just a story. And it's all about letting go of the story, letting go of the emotions, and just being present with what is. Looking at it. What makes the difference isn't that you create some new or better story around it or that you manage to stop the old emotions from arising. What makes the difference is that you expose whatever this is to the pure light of conscious awareness and you let you let that mindful awareness illuminate and make clear what's really there and what's really going on and what kind of effect it really has. See, it, it, you don't have to think about it or analyze it. It registers directly when through mindful awareness it reveals that, that this thought or this idea or this memory, whatever it is, has been making you suffer. And that is the key piece of information that, wow, it's been all this does is make me suffer. And when that part of your mind has been holding on to that back in the shadows all of these years, gets that message that, oh, because it, it's been holding on to this and it's been doing whatever it's been doing with it, 
because that part of your mind thought this was this was the, this was what was good for you. This was the this was the right thing to do. This was the solution. This was the path to happiness. When it gets the message that hey, this is not serving us. This is not working. This doesn't help. Then it starts to change. And that's more than anything else. What you want to do is expose your stuff whenever it presents itself whenever it comes into conscious awareness expose your stuff to the pure clear light of conscious awareness and let that do the work and when the emotions start to get in the way you know you you deal with the emotions but you always want to get back to just eliminating whatever it is there when the thoughts start to come up you just get beyond the thoughts to what's really behind there. And it all comes down to loving what is, accepting what is. You know, because whatever emotional trauma that you've had in the past, the only way it's going to stop being a trauma for you in the present, the only way you're going to stop reliving it, consciously or unconsciously, is when you come to the place of just accepting it, okay, that's what was, that's what happened, and so what? That was then, this is now. That's the place you need to get to. So you're saying awareness, acceptance. Yeah. Awareness, acceptance, and if you can relate to it in these terms, love. Because it's part of you, so... Yeah. It's part of you. That's if you can't love it, then you're still divided against yourself. Yeah. I think you could have thought of a third A. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a third what? A third what? Affection. Awareness, acceptance, and... Affection. Affection. <laughs> Three A's. Okay. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. I'm putting this in totally real life. Um, not everything you can accept. Sometimes there are things that they will be unpleasant, and you feel that you have to do that. And how do you approach? I mean, I don't know. You have a business, and you have an employee, and you know they're not doing the job, and you have to fire them, for example. And obviously, it will not bring you joyful feeling. Then you kind of go back and forth. Okay, but this is not good for. Um, how do you approach that? Or in a similar situation like this? Mm -hmm. Okay, well there's several things in here. Like the first thing I heard you say is there's some things that you can't accept. And I would say that's not true. There's some things that maybe you can't accept yet. But uh, they're maybe hard to believe that you can accept everything. But if you may not be there yet, and that's all right. If you can't accept it yet, that's all right. That doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. That doesn't mean that you need to change the way you are or force yourself to accept something. It just needs, you need to recognize. It's helpful if you can have faith in the fact that everything can eventually be accepted. But say, okay, I, can't, I haven't gotten there yet with this thing. But keep working towards getting there. Now there are things 
there are things that we have to do. You use the example if you have employees and they're not doing the job, you might have to fire the employees. Uh, there are things that we have to do that are unpleasant, that might make us unhappy, that might give us feelings of regret. Maybe, maybe the employee that you have to fire, let's make it real difficult. This. Maybe, uh, maybe they're your nephew, or maybe they're a good friend, you know, and you wanted to give them this job, but you know they're totally screwing up. It makes it really painful. And that's what I meant by not accepting, not like not accepting things. Just it's hard, it's difficult to accept the job they do. That's why yeah. not accepting. Yeah, like you don't one. need to accept them failing to do their job. You need to accept the fact that they failed to do their job. Okay. And you, you need to do whatever you need to do in the best possible way that you can. And so you'll have to think about that and decide exactly what that is. Uh, but if you have to fire them, then you can accept that. And if you find, here's the key thing, if you, if you decide you have to fire them and you go ahead and do it, but now you find yourself suffering, ask yourself, what is there that I'm not accepting about this? Mm-hmm. What is it I'm still resisting? Um, and see what that is. The thing is that we, we overrate our ability to understand things quite a bit. In reality, and you may find this out at a later time, firing that person was actually the best thing that had happened to them in a long time. And you don't know that. You don't know whether it will be or whether it won't be. So you do the absolute best that you can, and you accept that this is, this is the best that I can do under these circumstances. This is what it seems to me like I need to do. Uh, it may seem like a really terrible thing that this has happened, but accept it and accept that you don't really know. You may think it's terrible, but you don't really know that it's terrible. And as long as you've done the best, then you shouldn't you shouldn't have to deal with too much feeling of uh, of regret, suffering, self doubt, guilt, things like that. Yeah. You know, you look into the roots of that and see, see where that guilt is coming from. See what, uh, what attachments and what aversions and what notions of who and what you are. You know, and, uh, who knows, you have to fire somebody and some part of you is saying, well, when, you were, when I was that age, I was even worse than that. Well. That may be true. Does that mean you should feel guilty about doing what somebody probably should have done to you when you were? I think it's part of our upbringing, kind of. You should be nice. That's what I was. That's that's part of the not being nice. Yeah. The not being. Although there is a reason, a good reason, but you kind of you're yeah. brought up to just not to be mean to people, right. and that's kind of what it seems. To. But you shouldn't be nice. You should be loving. Yeah. Nice, at least to me, nice is 
what something might look like to somebody else who doesn't necessarily know what's really going on at all. You should be loving. Everything you do, if you have to fire somebody, fire them out of love. 